not sure how I'm supposed to follow that. <laughs> I will try. What a incredible privilege and blessing it is for us as a church to be able to have an impact in some place like that. I think my quick math was correct. Said like 100, what was it, 79, something like that, people? That's amazing. That's incredible. What an amazing blessing. Um, all right. Well, we are going to be in Matthew this morning. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 8. So if you can go ahead and turn there in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we have them available at the end of each row, I think. We'll cover the seats. Um, you know, a couple weeks ago when Pastor Sam was gone, Jim had the opportunity to just really say so many bad things about Sam. <laughs> so maybe instead of this, we should just talk for a while about all the things that are wrong with Sam. So um, we're going to be in chapter 8. We're going to be starting at verse 28. And if you haven't been following along with us, let me just kind of try to catch us up. We spent quite a bit of time in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus' most famous sermon. We spent time going through this sermon. And then after that, we've spent a couple weeks in chapter 8 going through this kind of retelling, this list of miracles that Jesus performs. Matthew gives us this list. And I think it's important for us to kind of set this in context and understand why Matthew transitions to this list of miracles after Jesus' sermon. And I think it's summed up with the people's reaction after the Sermon on the Mount. If you remember, Jesus gave his sermon to his disciples, to his followers. There was also a large crowd of people that had gathered around who were listening to this sermon. And in chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, it says, When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, because he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like their scribes. It's a very interesting reaction from the people. They were surprised at Jesus' teaching, because he was teaching like someone who had authority. They recognize that Jesus' teaching is not like anything else that they are used to. I think it's worth us taking a minute to understand why. They say he teaches like one who had authority. So what's, what does that mean? Well, let me compare it to myself. I'm standing up here. I'm going to read scripture to you, and then I'm going to teach you, to the best of my ability, out of that scripture. I'm going to teach you what the Holy Spirit has convicted me as I've studied through this, and I'm going to teach you kind of a, a summary and my best understanding of what other teachers and commentaries and things that I've read have to say about this passage. So I'm not teaching out of my own authority. I'm teaching out of Scripture's authority. Similarly, in Jesus' day, the rabbis and the scribes and the Pharisees would teach out of, they didn't have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of them, but they would teach out of what they had been taught. Each kind of rabbi would follow along this specific line of understanding of Scripture and teaching that they had been taught by their own teachers. And each, um, you know, there were kind of these famous rabbis that had their understanding, their particular understanding of scripture and the truths. And these teachings were kind of called a yoke that 
each one of these teachers and rabbis would take upon themselves, and then that is what they would teach to other people. So again, they were not teaching out of their own authority. They were teaching out of the authority of someone else, some famous rabbi, some teacher who had passed that on to them. But Jesus does not teach like this. The people were amazed because instead of saying, well, Rabbi Gamaliel says X, Y, and Z, Jesus said, you've heard one thing, but I say to you this. This is a radically different way to teach. A lot of the time, Jesus didn't even start with scripture. He just taught, this is the truth. And then if he used scripture, it backed up what he had to say, rather than the other way around. That is an incredibly different way to teach. And it's one that claims a level of authority that I would never even pretend to claim. That other teachers should not try to claim. Because Jesus had actual authority. And that's why Matthew gives us this series of miracles. Matthew tells us these stories, and his point to these stories is to prove that Jesus has authority. So he tells us this series of miracles, and it's kind of a, a list of areas of authority that build upon one another. First, he starts with this man with leprosy. Jesus heals him, proving Jesus' authority over what is clean and unclean, which goes to the rules and the law that the people had, and really goes to his authority over the Jewish people and their rules. Second, we see this centurion's faith, and we see that Jesus proves his authority over Gentiles and the larger world. Third, we see Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law, proving his authority over sickness and disease. And then fourth, last week, we saw Jesus command the winds and the waves, proving his authority over the natural world and the larger creation. Each one of these kind of builds upon one another as Jesus is proving his authority over these areas. And then he's going to continue in these next two stories that we're going to read today. So let's go ahead and jump into that. Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 28, we're going to read through chapter 9, verse 8. It says, When he had come to the other side, to the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him as they came out of the tombs. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. Suddenly they shouted, What do you have to do with us, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? A long way off from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. If you drive us out, the demons begged him, send us into the herd of pigs. Go, he told them. So when they had come out, they entered the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the water. Then the men who tended them fled. They went into the city and reported everything, especially what had happened to those who were demon-possessed. At that, the whole town went out to meet Jesus. When they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. So he got into a boat. He crossed over and came to his own town. Just then, some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a stretcher. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Have courage, son, your sins are forgiven. 
At this, some of the scribes said to themselves, He's blaspheming. Perceiving their thoughts, Jesus said, Why are you thinking evil things in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he turned and told the paralytic, Get up, take your stretcher, and go home. So he got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and gave glory to God who had given such authority to men. That is scripture for us this morning. Let me pray and then we can start talking about this. Jesus, I thank you for your example. I thank you for your incredible example of authority and power and mercy. Jesus, I pray that you would open up our hearts, that you would show us who you are, and that you would change us. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. All right, so there's really two stories contained in this passage. We're going to kind of talk about them one by one. So like Jesus does several other times in his ministry, these crowds start to gather around and they begin demanding things of Jesus. Heal us, feed us, do all of these things for us. And he does so, but then he needs to take a break. He needs a rest. So he gets some of his closest followers and they get in a boat and they cross the sea of Galilee. As they are crossing the sea, a storm kicks up. And Jesus proves his authority over the wind and the waves. And importantly, his disciples still don't understand who he is. They ask themselves, what kind of a man has authority over the wind and the waves? Then they land on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, in the region of the Gadarenes. Now this story, both of these stories, are included in both Mark and Luke's Gospels. There's a little bit of controversy over the fact that both of those authors call this the region of the Gerasenes, but it's really the same region. This area of the world is called the Decapolis, and it's a very heavily Roman Gentile area. There are two kind of larger cities in the region, one called Gadara and one called Gerasa, and Matthew calls the people, you know, referencing one city, and Mark and Luke reference the other city. There's really no controversy, no problems there. So Jesus exits the boat onto the shore near a cemetery, a place where the dead were buried. And living in among these tombs were these two demon-possessed men. And as Jesus approaches, they rush out from among the tombs, and as we see in Mark's telling, they throw themselves at Jesus' feet. And the story continues with them crying out, What do you have to do with us, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? A little ways away from them, there's this herd of pigs. Mark says there were about 2,000 pigs in the herd. So the demons beg Jesus that if he is going to cast them out, to please put them in these pigs instead of destroying them. So Jesus, with a simple word, says, go. And the demons are driven into the pigs. The pigs go crazy, rush off a cliff, and die. Now the men who had been tending these pigs go back into the nearby city. They tell everyone what had happened, and then the people are terrified of Jesus, so they come out all together and beg Jesus to leave. This is a wild story. 
Matthew has been using these stories to prove Jesus' authority over these kind of growing areas. And now he tells this story to prove Jesus' authority over the spiritual forces of the world. There's a couple of things that I think are very important for us as we look at this story. First off, this is not the first or the only time that Jesus casts out demons, but this is a very dramatic telling of this. In Luke, we learn that these men had been living naked in and among these tombs for a long time. In Mark, we learn that the local people had tried time and time again to bind them with chains and shackles, but these men just broke the chains and the shackles every time. No one was strong enough to subdue them. These two men had been tormented by this group of demons for a long time, and they in turn were tormenting others. In Mark, we get a bit of an extended version of this story, and in it we learn that the demons call themselves legion. A legion was a military term that was most commonly used to refer to the Roman Empire's military unit, which was called a legion. And the Romans, of course, being kind of the dominant world force at the time. So in naming themselves this, the demons were calling themselves a military unit of thousands. They were claiming power and authority, and the people in that region were under their power. And yet, as soon as Jesus steps foot on this shore, these demons are instantly defeated. Our culture has popularized this idea of heaven and hell as kind of two equal opposing forces, that Satan and his demons rule hell, and that God and his angels rule heaven, and the two are at war over earth and the souls of us, of the people. In some ways, scripture does support some of that. Scripture tells us that there is a spiritual war happening. There are evil forces fighting against heavenly forces, and this is a real and present spiritual war that if we are believers, we've been called to take part in in some ways. But there's a couple of misconceptions that we need to make sure we don't fall into. First, Satan and his demons don't rule hell. Scripture teaches us that hell is a prison where Satan and his demons will one day be locked away. They aren't there now. They are currently roaming the earth, looking for humans that they can steal, kill, and destroy. Second thing is, while there is a war happening, these are not two equal sides. Everyone involved in the war knows that there is a winner already. That Jesus Christ has all authority given to him. As soon as he steps foot on this shore, these demons know they are defeated. They have no choice in the matter. These demons have been torturing these men and have been a problem and a menace for these locals for a long time. But as soon as Jesus Christ shows up, there is no fight, there is no war. Jesus doesn't pull out his holy sword and start slaying demons. They throw themselves at his feet and beg him not to destroy them. The demons know that at some point they are fated to lose and be locked in hell. And their only question, their only thing to beg for is that Jesus, please don't do it early. Please don't do it yet. I think it's amazing that the disciples 
continue to see all these things that Jesus is doing. Continue to see all these ways that his power and authority are on display. And they're still confused about who Jesus is. They continually ask themselves, who is this that we're following? Who is this man that can command the wind and the waves? Who is this man that can heal the sick? Who is this man that can drive out demons? They ask themselves, who is Jesus? And that is really the important question. People without the correct answer to that question have caused so much confusion and evil throughout history. There are plenty of religions and groups out there that try to co-opt Jesus for their own purposes. They try to turn him into something less than he really is. We see the demons here call Jesus the Son of God. Jesus often refers to himself as the Son of Man, which I think sometimes can cause some confusion. Is Jesus a man, or is he God? <laughs> If you've been in church for much time at all, I'm sure you know the answer to that question is that he is both. I think it's worth at least talking briefly about that phrase, son of man, that Jesus uses, because I think it can cause a little bit of confusion. Why does Jesus continually call himself the son of man? There's a couple of reasons. I think one of them being that he is trying to humbly present himself to these people and allow them to form their own conclusions, and he is slowly revealing himself. But another reason that he uses this phrase, Son of Man, is a direct reference to Daniel chapter 7, where we see the prophet Daniel sees a vision of heaven. Let me read this to you, starting in verse 13, it says, I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like a Son of Man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Jesus uses this phrase to directly tell the people who should know this passage I am he, I am the one who is the, going to have a dominion and a kingdom that will last forever. Yes, Jesus is the Son of God. These demons are not able to lie about he, who Jesus is. But he is also the Son of Man. He is a human who came and was made flesh to dwell among us. We'll talk a little more about that in a minute. So in this moment, these demons recognize Jesus' authority. They beg him not to send them into hell, but instead to send them into these pigs. They know that he is not going to let them keep torturing these men. They know who Jesus is. They know why he's there. They know that he is not going to allow them to continue oppressing these people. And we see Matthew puts Jesus' full authority on display here. By him only using a single word, he just says, go. The demons are driven out of the men into the herd of pigs. They go crazy, rush off of a cliff, and drown. There's all sorts of debate that I read through commentaries about why pigs. Was Jesus using these pigs because they were an unclean animal? Did the demons purposely destroy the pigs, or did the pigs not just be able to handle the demons? None of that matters. 
What matters here is that Jesus' power and authority is on full display. And he saves these men from their torment. What Matthew doesn't share, but what we see in the other two tellings of this story, is that these men are grateful and they want to follow Jesus, but he sends them into back to their homes. He sends them into this region. And they are really some of the first Gentile missionaries for Jesus. So the handlers of these pigs, the, the shepherds of the pigs, rush into the town. They tell everyone what happened, and everyone is terrified of Jesus. So they come out together and beg him to leave. And he does. He came here to find rest and to get away from the crowds, but they reject him. So he goes back across the Sea of Galilee, back to Capernaum, and then we see this second story. Jesus is back in his hometown, back in Capernaum, when some men bring Jesus this paralytic lying on a stretcher. Jesus sees the man, he sees his friend's faith, and so he forgives this man's sin. Now the scribes who are now back following Jesus around because he's back on their side of the sea get offended and say that Jesus is blaspheming. Jesus understands what they're thinking and feeling in their hearts. So he asks them, which one is easier, healing the man or forgiving his sins? Now I think Jesus is being sarcastic with them because they obviously know that it's far easier to forgive or to heal the man than it is to forgive sins. There are other people who were faith healers who would, through the power of God, would bring healing to people. But only God himself can forgive sins. Jesus knew that these people were confused about who he was, so he was gracious, and he did the lesser miracle in order to prove that he had the authority to do the greater miracle. He turns to the man, and he heals him, and tells him to get up and walk. He does. And again, the people are awestruck, and they give glory to God, because he gave such authority to men. I think it's interesting that once again, people are confused. <laughs> Jesus it shows that he has the power to forgive sin, which very clearly shows that he is God. And they thank God for giving authority to men. They don't understand what's going on. Matthew continues his progression of showing Jesus' authority. He moves on from showing Jesus' authority over the spiritual forces of the world and of his enemies to showing that Jesus has authority over sin itself and over judging the fate of those who are under sin's curse. Jesus forgives this man's sin. This is a huge deal. The scribes react the way they do because it's a big deal. If Jesus is not God, then this is blasphemy. Thankfully, we know that Jesus is God. He alone has the right to judge or forgive sin. We see this throughout Scripture, that God has the right and the ability to judge sin. From the very beginning, he set up rules and structures for people to follow, and we broke them. 
We rebelled against his commands. We rebelled against the place that he put us in, and that is called sin. The amazing thing is that this is the enemy that Jesus came to fight and overcome. It was sin. It wasn't yet time for Jesus to destroy the demons, but this is what he was here to handle. Sin. And these people continue to reject him. He saved the Gadarenes from a legion of demons, and they came out and rejected him. He has healed illness, disease, sin. He's shown mastery over the storm, and yet the people continue to reject him. Sin continues to rule in their hearts. They continue to think evil things in their hearts. This is not unique to those people. We struggle with this as well. We have sin in our hearts. We can see that in ourselves and in the culture around us. Humans choose sin. We choose to reject Jesus. We choose to reject God who has authority. We choose rebellion. We choose evil. We choose to enslave ourselves to our sin. Satan and his demons are roaming the earth because we gave them the authority to do it. In the beginning, God created the earth and he gave people authority over the earth and we gave it to the enemy. In Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked, according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. We chose evil. We chose to be a part of, to give authority to Satan, this ruler of the power of the air. And as a result, we are children under wrath. We deserve wrath. We deserve judgment for our sin. And these people continue to reject Jesus, just like we do. And the crazy thing is Jesus lets them. He lets them continue to reject him. Jesus could have stood up in his full power and authority. He could have shown up as the king conquering Messiah that they wanted him to be. He could have commanded legions of angels. He could have done all of these things. He could have chosen to simply judge their sin. But instead, he doesn't. Instead, he takes on flesh. He becomes a meek and humble human. Even in his tiredness, even in his exhaustion, he lets them reject him and cast him out of their country. He goes away. He chooses to identify himself with these people who continue to reject him. And eventually, they continue rejecting him and kill him. He chooses to let that happen. In the Old Testament, God had his people create a tabernacle and then eventually a temple. And inside of the kind of central chamber of this place, was what was called the Ark of the Covenant. This was 
the representation, the physical representation of God's presence with his people. On top of the ark was this chair, a throne, where the presence of God would rest in the form of a cloud. This throne was called the mercy seat. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle the blood of sacrificed animals on this mercy seat. He would ask God to have mercy on them. It was only through this, the offering of sacrificed blood, that God's righteous judgment of sin could be avoided. And every year, God would offer mercy to his people. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. He is God. He could have chosen to enact perfect and righteous judgment on these people, on us, on all of us who are sinners. But instead, he chooses mercy. He chose to empty himself, to take on the form of a servant, to allow himself to be betrayed and murdered, to become the sacrifice. He chose to allow his own blood to be shed as our atonement, as our sacrifice, so that our sins could be forgiven. That's why he continued to allow himself to be rejected. That's why he allows us to reject him even now. He continues to choose mercy. We can see in this story that Jesus sees into the scribes' hearts. He sees into the hearts of the men who bring him this paralytic, and he sees their faith. Jesus knows us. And he loves us. He created us, and despite the fact that we reject him, he still loves us. He loves us enough that he was willing to become one of us, to give up his place, to come down, become a human, allow us to reject him over and over and over again, and then kill him. Jesus wasn't willing to simply judge our sin, throw us away, without going to these extreme lengths to show his love for us. I make no mistake, just like the demons knew, Jesus is going to come back again. And that time, he will arrive as the conquering king. He will be at the head of legions of angels, and all evil and all sin and all of his enemies will be vanquished at the sight of him. He will throw all evil into hell to be locked away, including those who continue to reject him. That time is not yet. Jesus isn't done offering mercy. Like we do every week, we're gonna spend a couple of minutes in reflection. I encourage you to think about these stories. Think about Jesus' power and authority that is on display. Think about how he knows you and chooses to have mercy on you. In scripture, every time people see the working of God's power and authority, there's fear. In Proverbs, it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you're in this room and you hear that one day Jesus will return and his enemies will be cast into the hell and you feel fear, 
That's natural. You don't have to be left there. Just as the disciples in the storm felt fear and turned to Jesus, we can do the same. Fear is only the beginning of wisdom. God doesn't leave us in fear. He gives himself to be our comfort. The comfort of knowing that we have a Savior who is all-powerful, who loves us and is there for us and invites us into his family. We should take comfort in the awesome displays of Jesus' power. What could possibly stand against us if we are his? In Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul asks the question. He says, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? His answer is nothing. He says, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate you from the power and love of Christ. If this is your first time ever hearing this, if you haven't accepted Jesus' mercy, I would encourage you to seriously consider this. Seriously consider. And if you need to, please talk to somebody else in this room. We would love to talk to you about Jesus' love. If you're a believer in here, again, I encourage you to seriously consider who Jesus is. He has mercy on you. This is such a beautiful message, I think, coming on the heels of hearing the incredible work he's doing in Colombia. Because who Jesus is should change who we are. It should give us a heart to see his mercy given to others. Consider who Jesus is. He is the one who has full authority and power. You don't have to fear. No one else is stronger. Yes, we will face hardship. We will face all sorts of things in this life because there is an enemy and we are at war, but Jesus is stronger. Nothing can tear us away from his love. I'm going to finish by reading. I'm sure you're familiar with this. This is from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. This is just speaking of Jesus and who he is. Chris, you should probably go ahead and come on up. Speaking of Jesus, Scripture says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. In a couple of minutes, reflecting on who Jesus is and what that should do in your heart.